Hello and welcome to this, the fourth programme in this series of Faber podcasts, to mark the centenary of the birth of England's greatest 20th century composer, Benjamin Britten. In this programme, we look at Britten's musical legacy, the music, the recordings, his place in the concert hall, his influence. In his book Essential Britain, filmmaker and Britain expert John Bridcott provides an introduction to all the composer's published works, arranged by genre. He also rates the works using a star system, with five stars awarded to what he considers Britain's greatest pieces, including The War Requiem, The Four Sea Interludes from Peter Grimes, The Serenade for Tenor Horn and Strings, and several of the operas. I asked John about the task of evaluating such a substantial body of work. I thought it would be a bit of fun, to be quite honest. I mean, I hope people haven't taken it too seriously. Alan Britton, his nephew, uh, says he'll never speak to me again because I didn't give Winter Words five stars as opposed to four. He's probably right. But in fact, the star system was, was for me, quite useful because it was a way of actually focusing my thoughts about the work, the, the, the corpus of work. Instead of just thinking about all these different pieces individually. I had to try and see this amazing range of works as a whole and try to see the way that it developed. I didn't, you know, it would be a formidable task, I think, to try and listen to all his music chronologically. Not necessarily hugely rewarding, but I mean, it would require a heck of a lot of organisation to achieve that. But I did... I'd got a much stronger sense of the chronology by listening to it and, and being tr- quite careful to to clock in my own mind at what point in his development each work occurred. But it did mean listening to all the music. And, you know, that's quite a tough assignment in itself because some of it is still, as with all composers, is quite obscure and you've got to dig around to try and find a recording. There are a few pieces, of course, that aren't recorded and then, you know, it's a matter of trying to see the music itself and work from that. I asked John to tell me more about appraising the recordings of Britain's works, including the composer's own. The recordings, of course, vary hugely, and it's the great danger is to think that a recording you're listening to is in some way definitive. I mean, you've got Britain took great care to record nearly all his operas himself, I think because he had a sense, again, of history, that he wanted to put down the composer's view. But since his death and since Peter Pierce's death, who was after all for a lot of the vocal work was the sort of the template, people have become freer to interpret the music just like they do with any other composer, entirely on the basis of what's in the score and not to be held to account by comparisons with the composer's own recording. And this has been very interesting because it's it's shown how the work can develop in, in terms of people's understanding and the, the, the people's understanding of context and of the way that that the world is changing around us and we that affects the way we view works of art. So it, it was an incredibly exciting but exhausting experience to go through all the pieces. John also uses a key symbol in his commentaries to highlight pieces or movements which he thinks offer a particularly fruitful way of as he puts it, unlocking the mysteries of Britain's music. Legacies, of course, can also be personal. I asked composer Colin Matthews, now chair of the Britain estate, whether his close collaboration with Britain during his later years had left a mark on him as a human being and as a musician. I suppose in some ways at the time, 
I wasn't aware. Looking back at it, it is such a different picture. Uh, now I meet you know, young composers who were born some way after Britain's death. So I turn into a sort of mythical figure who worked with Britain. But at the time, I mean, I, I, as I say, I was doing a job of work. It became a much more personal thing in the last years. And the experience, I mean, it was you know, to, to actually sit by the side of a, of a great composer. It particularly, in retrospect, seems to be a, an extraordinary thing to have done. And, and it's it, part of my remarkably unconventional training as a composer is that you know, my, the first thing I worked on was, was Mahler's uncompleted Tenth Symphony, and, and then to work with Britain. Well, I sort of managed to work with two of the greatest composers of the 20th century, almost by accident. So looking back on it, it, it does seem to be a, a, an experience pretty much unparalleled. But as I say, at the time, it didn't have the same effect. And, and musically, it didn't have the same effect on me because I, I was working in, in different musical directions at that time. I certainly am aware of it having had a more pervasive influence in later years. But, and also because, I mean, I got to know Britain's music a great deal better over the years as I've, as I've worked both with it and on behalf of the Britain estate. I asked Colin what place Britain occupies in his musical life today, nearly four decades on from the composer's death. It's a very vital part. I mean, it's something uh, that's very much at the, at, at the core of what I do. But it's, I always say when, when I'm asked what I learned from Britain, I would say more, more than anything, I learned the professionalism of being a composer because, uh, and I didn't actually realise that Britain was, the most professional composer that one could possibly meet. I mean, his ability to meet deadlines, to work at great speed, to get things right, it, it was an extraordinary ability. And so, so that, was, that was a tremendous schooling. And it's that more than the actual music itself, which has had a, had a profound influence. And how does he see Britain's place in musical culture more widely? Britain's own position, I think, now, and it's, it's extraordinary to see in the centenary how uh, all-pervasive it, it seems to be, and that people's appetite is, is not satisfied by it. I mean, I, I was worried when we'd been, because we'd been planning within the estate and the Britain Pierce Foundation, we'd been planning for the centenary for 10 years. I was worried that there might be a sort of overkill, that you know, there'd be so much Britain play that people would just want to turn it off but it doesn't seem it seems the appetite just continually grows and it's something extraordinary about Britain's reputation that unlike most composers whose reputation gets goes through quite a big dip after their death it just hasn't happened with him very few composers that is paralleled by uh, possibly I mean Shostakovich has had the same that the reputation has only grown since his death. And I think part of that is the fact that if they had a dip in their reputations, it was actually while they were still alive. So that Britain, certainly himself, felt himself somewhat out of fashion in the, in the 60s and early 70s. But that had begun to turn the corner by the time he died. And it's never looked back. The music has just grown. The number of his works which are in the repertoire seems to be growing too. There is a, an extraordinary number of works that, that, for instance, were not published at the time of his death. I mean, a measure of that, I mean, because he was extraordinarily precocious as a child. But where uh, at the Britain Pierce Foundation, we're compiling a, a thematic catalogue of every work, including juvenilia and unfinished works. 
And the measure of the size of, of, of that is the fact that the Opus 1 work, his Sinfonietta, will become work, I think, number 735 in the catalogue. A lot of that work is, is, is not of great interest, but some of it is extraordinarily fascinating. And he kept every single note that he wrote, often revisited the work of his childhood himself. And you feel that sometimes works that were abandoned or, or discarded were ones that he just moved on too quickly because he was too busy to, to go back to them. Some extraordinary works that were published quite soon after his death, uh, including, the, for instance, there's a piece called The Temporal Variations for Oboe and Piano, which no less a musician than Heinz Holliger says is the greatest work for oboe written in the 20th century. Well, Britain discarded it after the first performance. Something happened in the performance. I think sometimes you would find with Britain that if something upsetting happened during the performance, it would affect his view of the work. So there are quite a few works which, which disappeared. Colin Matthews spoke of a new generation of composers born after Britain's death. One such is Bulgarian-born, London-based composer Dobrinka Tabakova, who is a great admirer of Britain's music. What are the things I asked her that she could identify as having learnt from Britain? I wish that I had such a structured brain that I could say that this is where I learned this from, and that, but I think obviously listening to the, the music and... Uh, um, I remember setting some Shakespearean sonnets, not necessarily Shakespeare, and um, and I was looking at Britain's um, settings of, of the sonnets at the same time, and it does leave you with a feeling of wonder whether they should be set again. <laughs> <laughs> now the pacing, and uh, I think he, he just had a complete another sense of, of words and, and of carrying a melody through and communicating again through the, the words and doing it musically without moving away from what the words are saying. So I think being able to sustain both a narrative and a musical flow as well, I think is, um, well, it's magical to achieve. <laughs> Finally, I asked Dobrinka if she had been influenced by the professionalism with which Britain had managed his career. Very much, and I think that so much is driven by the passion that he had for people. I think that's very evident in his choice of opera material and, and the, the way that he talks about characters. It's so much about the human condition and the setup of, of the festival itself, about the people that he... the. the the community that he lived in. So I think that, in a way, was reciprocated by the people around him. I think that's perhaps it wasn't thought of as a, as a career on his part, but it, it became one because of his sincerity to the people around him. Dobrinka Tabakova. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Faber to mark the Britain centenary. There are full details about the books on Britain published by Faber including John Bridcott's Companion to Britain's Life and Work, which is called Essential Britain, on the website at faber.co.uk. And further episodes in this series will be appearing throughout the autumn, so I hope you'll want to listen to them all. For the moment, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.